Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, and welcome back to Backchat. If the nature podcast is that eager student who sits in the front row and is always the one with the first question, then Backchat is the dorm room slacker who's forgotten where the lecture theatre is. Yes, like the prodigal son that you didn't even notice was gone, Backchat has returned for an end-of-the-year special. Today's roundtable chit-chat will look at papers with no citations and why talking about physics can be a bit of a turn-off. Plus, because it's 2017, I'm afraid we're not going to be able to avoid the Donald. I'm Adam Levy, and chatting back with me in the studio today are Lizzie Gibney. Hi, Adam. I'm Lizzie. I'm a physical sciences reporter here in London. Richard Van Norden. Hello. I edit features for Nature from London. And on the line from Washington, D.C., we have Lauren Morello. Hey, I edit news from North and South America. Coming up in the show, we'll be talking about the papers that literally no one is talking about, papers with zero citations. Do they show that academia is just shouting into the void, or is there zero reason to worry about them? We'll also be looking at the year of Donald Trump. How has America's new president shifted expectations of science in the US? And how do we cover politics when there's more happening every day than typically happened in an average year? Finally, we'll be asking a question very close to my physics heart. Is physics cool? Or are the only people who care about pentaquarks pentadorks? Are physics stories harder to write and harder to get audiences to read? If so, why? Now, firstly, Richard, you've just written a feature all about zero citation papers. Just to be absolutely clear, what do we mean when we say a paper has zero citations? Yeah, we mean this curious situation where a scientific research paper has never been cited, never mentioned in the reference list of another peer-reviewed paper. So uh, you might think that's quite rare and quite weird because if a paper's never cited, it means the scientists themselves never followed it up. But the reason I really wanted to look into this feature is I've seen a fair number of opinion columns railing against academia being this ivory tower. And then they always go on to say, for example, uh, by some estimates, more than half of academic papers are never even cited. Of course, it's not true. Um, but I sort of looking into this, it's a sort of weird um, underbelly of, of scientific articles. And unfortunately, I'm going to tell you now, it's not possible to say what proportion of science isn't cited. And the reason for that is uh, there's no database that counts all scientific papers. And even the ones that do 
are not complete and they have errors, which you wouldn't normally notice when comparing articles against each other. But when you're talking about absolutely zero sites, it does matter. Um, so I took a look at the web of science and I got a researcher called Vincent Rivière at the University of Montreal to help me. When I say help me, he, he did it. And I <laughs> talked about it with him. Um, and he basically found, um, if you're interested, that uh, according to the web of science, if you publish an article today, fewer than 10% of those uh, will get no citations ever. That's according to the web of science. Actually, the proportion's less than that. So you've got to revise your, your expectations downwards a bit. Um, and also, interestingly, this proportion of uncited papers has been falling year on year over the last two or three decades. So for all those opinion columns that say academia has a mass of uncited papers and this proves, if proof weren't needed, that much of academia is shouting into the void and is completely irrelevant, well, uncitedness has been falling. But before we all cheer, that doesn't really mean much either, I'm afraid, because probably the reason uncitedness is falling is that scientists are publishing more papers and they are stuffing more references into those reference lists. This has quickly got very nihilistic, Richard. We started off just talking about zero citations and now you're saying nothing means anything at all. Well, <laughs> I think in the realm of citation analysis, a lot of stats that people throw around mean a lot less than they think. And this is one of them. Um, but, you know, I think part of the feature was to point out um, what this stat really means. But it's also, I think, another point of this feature was to talk about how even zero-sighted papers are not necessarily valueless and they are not necessarily never read. And there were some pretty interesting papers in that bunch that I talk about in the feature. For instance, uh, there was one about um, an HIV test kit in New York City um, that twice um, started malfunctioning. But it's essentially it was a public health paper and it's never been cited in a peer-reviewed article has been mentioned in the manual for that software, but I didn't count that. Um, and the point is that um, it's been read like 1,500 times. It's been downloaded nearly 500 times. So people looked at it. Just be cautious when you think that unsighted work is, is valueless. So it can be useful and have a value, but is it still a kind of a scientific dead end, I guess? Uh, you know, science being something that you build upon and if, if people even themselves didn't, didn't cite it in the future... Yeah, it, it basically is. Um, but the, that's not necessarily bad. But that's not necessarily bad. I know you did a, you co-wrote a feature a couple of years ago on the top 100 most cited papers. If you put that together with what you did here, like, are there broader lessons for your scientists? I think the broader lessons are that you should be very careful when using citation analyses to make a point about individual papers. You can use them at the level of a country, say, comparing a country to another country or perhaps even an institution. But if you're talking about privileging some papers over others because they got more or less sites, that's a pretty dangerous game to play. Did they ever get dug up out of obscurity? Are there ever zero site papers that have you know, no citations for 20 years and then someone suddenly finds it? Yeah. So the longest example I found was a paper in 1926 by a guy called Albert Peck who was looking at defects in glass and uh, shortly after he did this, manufacturers figured out how to make glass without defects by sort of floating it on molten metal, the Pilkington process. So everyone was very happy and we could all look out of our windows and job done. Uh, so that was that. <laughs> but uh, in 2014, a materials scientist at the University of Cambridge 
uh, was looking at how to purposefully put these defects into glass uh, to make it scatter light in interesting ways. Uh, and he decided to do a literature review because he likes that kind of thing. And he found this 1926 paper. So that's 1926 to 2014, which is the longest gap I've found. But maybe there's others out there. So if any listeners out there, their papers haven't been cited, there is still hope, even though in this case, I guess it was posthumously. Um, so now you've written you've written a feature on the least possible amount of citations a paper can get zero and the most cited papers. Is it possible to write a feature on the most averagely cited papers or is there are, are there no legs to that at all? <laughs> well, I'm I'm sure there's a feature about the papers I haven't written about yet. That that's got to got to be one in there. Um yeah, no, I'm thinking of establishing a, a weekly citation corner. Um all depends on demand from readers. So if you're listening and you want this, please write in. Um, there are so many topics to write about. For example, recently it's been uh, floated that researchers should have a self-citation index uh, where you should see who cites themselves the most. I'm kind of dying here for somebody to write uh, an analysis of zero citation papers and publish it in the literature and then cite all the zero citation papers they're referencing. Just to ruin, to, to mm -hmm. defeat their yeah. own study. <laughs> <laughs> Is the way that scientists access or find other papers changing zero citations because I was, I was thinking it could be a bit of a vicious cycle if nobody cites it initially then it doesn't come across um, you know other people's laps when they're reading but obviously now we have things like recommendation engines so it might be that some algorithm somewhere churns it out and says you might be interested in this whereas you'd never have found it in the past. Mm. So this is a really interesting debate that I didn't actually put in the feature which is has the internet and google and recommendation engines obviously it's changed the way scientists find papers but has it changed the way that scientists reference and cite papers? So um, work from Google and from La Riviere has shown that um, citations are becoming more diffusely spread through the literature, suggesting that the internet has helped people um, find uh, more obscure papers that they otherwise wouldn't, which is great. Um, but then the question is, well, um, to some extent, uh, volume of papers is going up, reference lists are getting longer, it's an inevitability, as, as I said, that unsighted papers will be found and discovered. So um, it, it, taking that into account, it may be that um, Google, by always sort of showing the key papers on the first page of its search results, is actually perhaps pushing some citations towards those papers. So it's a bit of a, bit of a live debate about how the internet has changed um, discoverability. Let's move on now from the papers that everyone is ignoring to the least ignorable man in the world, Donald J. Trump. Lauren, it's been quite the year for politics all round, but what have been the biggest shakeups of the Trump presidency, science-wise specifically? It's been a, a hell of a year. You're right about that. <laughs> um, it's almost a blur at, at this point. But I, I would say some of the bigger stories that came out of the Trump administration this year um, have been, um, number one, the often long waits to see who's going to head key science agencies. The kind of ongoing budget dance between Trump and Congress is interesting. Trump has proposed some big cuts, double-digit percentage cuts for science agencies. He wants to lop off 31% from the budget of the EPA. I think something like 18% from the NIH. And Congress so far has said no, but we're hoping for a final budget deal for 2018 uh, by Christmas. Um, which is about a, a week from now um, when we're taping. I think the one lesson of 
2017 in the U.S. has just been uh, expect unpredictability. So it's not clear quite what's going to happen because nothing has been clear this year. So we should make clear we're recording back chat perhaps about a week before it's going to be put out, which means uh, probably about 20 new huge political things will happen between uh, the recording and the launch of the show. Uh, It's reassuring to hear you, Lauren, say that it's uh, been a bit of a blur because it's certainly felt like that from the outside looking in. Uh, it's been a little. It's been a little insane, actually. I was just um, looking through everything that's happened this year, writing up a, a chunk of the year in review article we're going to be doing in our end of the year print issue, and I'd kind of forgotten some things. I was, oh yeah, the, the travel ban was actually 2017, the first travel ban. The year has gone. It's just been one big news story after another, and I think. Um, a lot of them have touched on science, even if they're not purely science stories. There's been a lot happening. You know, Trump fatigue was real here for the U.S. reporters and editors at Nature for the first six months of the year or so before things settled down. Um, and there was a point when I was kind of making sure to kind of rotate reporters off and, and give each one a Trump-free week every once in a while, because the pace of news here just got to be insane. About this time last year, I suppose we were saying we didn't really quite know what to expect of Trump as uh, as a president because he is kind of an untested politician. I, I suppose we must have had some expectations. D- do we feel he's lived up to what we maybe thought he might be? You know, I think in a lot of cases, yes. But part of the reason I say that is I think we were fairly cautious about making predictions about him. We knew that he questioned the science behind climate change and that he didn't like Obama's policies. He said on the campaign trail he wanted to roll back or pull the U.S. out of the Paris Accord. Uh, We knew that the advisors that he surrounded himself with on space topics were hot to go to the moon and not so interested in having NASA look at at climate change or earth science. I think all those things have panned out. Has he done anything that scientists have looked at in a positive light? That's the $64,000 question. Um, (laughs) Well, Lauren, you mentioned uh, the moon. There was recently the announcement that uh, America is going back to the moon. Is that something that we uh, around this table and on the phone are excited about? Lunar scientists are really happy. (laughs) Unsurprisingly, lunar scientists (laughs) (laughs) are really chuffed. I think it's a good idea. I think the moon has been very overlooked. I think there is an awful lot of science to be done there. Um, For a long time, it seemed like quite a barren landscape that we, you know, was done and dusted by the 70s. But actually... um, there's a huge amount of exploration that we should be doing, really, of the moon, and it's a natural next stepping stone. Um, so I think that's a good idea. You know, Trump also continued the cancer moonshot that Obama had announced but not quite finalized before he left. But, um, you know, in the biomedical arena, I think that's something that people like. In our list of uh, nature's 10 people who mattered this year, we we picked two uh, political American political people, um, but neither of them were Trump. We picked the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, Scott Pruitt, and the head of the political lobby group, 314, Shaughnessy Norton. And so we're sort of saying that those are the more tangible effects for science this year than, than perhaps Trump himself. 
Do you think Trump will be as disappointed he didn't make the Nature 10 as he didn't make Times Person of the Year? Not sure we'll even get on his radar. (laughs) But if he is upset, we'll find out in a series of tweets, probably in the early morning hours here in D.C., Lizzie and uh, Richard, do you, do you feel like no one really cares about Brexit anymore because it just seems so so small and inconsequential perhaps compared to some of the things that are happening across the Atlantic? I feel like people do care about it. The problem we've had in reporting on Brexit is the lack of real information. I think every single twist and turn that happens puts a slightly different slant on the potential for the UK's future collaborations with Europe. But it doesn't actually tell us anything. Um, and that's going to stay up in the air for quite a long time. So I think that's been the really difficult thing, to stay up to date and to keep people informed as to what's going on, um, but not just have reams and reams of articles that say, you know, they're just reaction from people saying, oh, this might be good or, oh, this might be bad, because nobody really knows. I find it really interesting. It feels to me, and I don't mean to trivialise it, because I think it's this huge existential issue, but it, it feels like a soap opera in that... <laughs> There are updates all the time and not much happens, but there are really strong reactions and heightened emotions. I read Brexit stories all the time and keep wondering when something's going to happen. I just think 2016 was seismic and we're going to look back in 10 years and it's going to seem even more seismic to us than it does now politically. It depends what the next 10 years hold, unfortunately. And on that uh, slightly concerning thought, uh, let's turn to our last story of the week. So I'd like to turn our attention away from politics and to the more tangible realm of physics. Um, I say more tangible, but for a subject that concerns itself with the physical properties of matter, physics can be remarkably hard to get a handle on. Um, Lizzie, you write about physics day in, day out. Do you think your job is fundamentally different to the job of writers who cover different scientific topics? Um, I would say fundamentally it's the same thing in that we are, the main job we do is distill information, you know, the the crux of something from a huge amount of information and we find what's newsy about it and we quickly turn around a story where we canvas lots of people's opinions. All the process is the same. I would say um, that for some physics stories, there is an added element of abstraction that makes it, um, I guess, to my mind, more difficult for me to write. So which kinds of physics stories are we talking about? I guess we're not talking about space missions, Exactly. So there's often this will be a story that involves, well, really that involves a lot of maths. I guess I guess that's it. It's where you have to um, you have to understand a concept that is very abstract, and that that could come in when it's a quantum physics story, and the way in which writers, often including myself, sometimes try not to, but just um, make that leap and say, due to the bizarre laws of quantum mechanics. Um, Set, basically gloss over, use a big broad brush fudge to not explain something because we do. It's like it a pathway be... in bio. Uh, yeah. When reporters, biology reporters just start talking about pathways, it's like they're waving their hands and saying, don't look here too closely. And that's very frustrating <laughs> as a reader. Whenever you are reading something and there's a bit where it just says, trust me. Mm. Then it you want it logically broken me. down, but um, but obviously the problem with quantum physics is that it's uh, it's not necessarily intuitively logical, even though it is ultimately very logical. It's that struggle. You don't want to like essentially plant a sign in the story that just says a miracle happens here, and mm-hmm. then 
jump to the rest of it. But the trick then really is to to get a sense of the idea, and so they come away from it thinking not not with that hollow feeling, not thinking this has just been glossed over, um, but you haven't actually gone down the rabbit hole of trying to explain it all. You're giving a, a hint of there being a fuller explanation out exactly. there. Exactly. So that's I think that's the the sense that you try and capture. So you you have to put your brain really through the ringer sometimes for these stories. But uh, having said that, I know that that is obviously also the case in in many other branches of science. Um and and I'm totally biased. I'm well aware of that as well. When I uh, when we were chatting about this in the office, my colleague sits next to me, Ewan Calloway, who writes about biological sciences. I said it's physics harder this is the question we're going to discuss and he just went not at all no way climate models are are like that too climate sensitivity i mean this is adam you know this well you're a recovering climate scientist but i think like writing about climate sensitivity which is there's a huge range for how much temperature rise you're going to get from a given amount of co2 but writing about climate models can just be really deadly for a lot of reasons. There's math involved, there's statistics, things happen in timescales where people have a hard time making the connection. It's like, you know, having like the floor kind of fall out from under you if you're not careful. If we imagine we were all completely fluent in maths, we could read it as easily as we can read uh, the words on a page. Would some physics stories still be at a disadvantage? I mean, you know, climate change affects all of us. Ancient human history. We can imagine the Neanderthals walking around. A top quark. I don't know what we do with that. (laughs) Yeah, there are some people, some people will just always love and advance in physics. You know, humans have got wiser in some way and that is interesting in itself. But I think there is potentially a disadvantage there in that anything in the biological sciences has to do with life. And I think a lot of the time in physics, as as people who write physics papers will know, like the last line of a paper is usually something which is, oh, this may have applications in some kind of electronics at some point in the future. That's totally grasping at straws. Um, yes, it, it might well, but that is not why they wrote the paper or did the research. I mean, there have been some incredibly big physics stories. Of course, LIGO was a huge story both this year and last year. But even after LIGO, there's... A really interesting piece of writing which was doing the rounds and which was highly discussed, uh, written by freelance science writer Cassandra Willyard, um, is written for the blog The Last Word on Nothing. And in it, she wrote, among other things, I don't understand physics or astronomy and I don't care about them. Um, and this article emphasised that uh, in order to connect with the story, she really needed to connect to humans and the stories which emphasize this kind of human struggle to find uh, gravitational waves and connect them to light that resonated with her but the actual gravitational waves themselves never were going to i can appreciate that and everybody's different um i mean i would disagree with that i think um with the with the blog fundamentally i find the idea of of learning about the universe in a completely different way to be to be just fundamentally fa- fascinating but I guess each person's entitled to their opinion. But um, Richard, I feel like you might be being slightly hard done by in this conversation because you are, of course, a chemist and we, we don't really talk about chemistry at all. It's it's tricky with chemistry because um, chemistry is all around us all the time. But so much so as to be invisible. So much so as to be invisible um, and largely ignored. Um, and also that... Um, Breakthroughs in physics have that uh, mysticism about them. And whereas chemistry doesn't really have that 
wow, amazing mysticism. And it, and it doesn't have that, you know, it's about you, the human, unless maybe it's biochemistry. Um, so it's really important, um, but it doesn't, it, it lies in that space between um, the sort of amazing mind-blowing nature of some physics and the human touch of biology. Yeah, as a, somebody who was studying chemistry before, I actually have never had any desire to write about chemistry. I think it's kind of applied and boring. I'm a traitor, I guess. <laughs> as editors, is it, uh, is it difficult to edit uh, physics stories in a way that it, it isn't difficult to edit? say, biology stories? Can, can you sympathize with these reporters on TV who, who don't know how to ask the tough questions? I think it's all about making a decision about what you think your audience wants from the story and what your audience already understands and therefore how much you have to explain. And that just colors how you edit anything. And that's why it's tough for the reporters at general newspapers or TV programs is they don't know that their audience is really going to care or be gripped by or knows anything about this story and so they have to ask the basic questions for their audience um, and that often uses up the 15 seconds of fame that they've allotted <laughs> whereas at least at Nature we have the luxury of knowing that our readers are going to probably care about this physics breakthrough and even while some might read the top line and then stop that's okay because there will be quite a lot of people who will want to know what's going on. That is all we have time for. So thank you to Lizzie Gibney and Richard Van Norden, who are here in the London studio, and to Lauren Morello, who's on the line in DC. To stay up to date with all the latest and greatest science news, make sure to follow at Nature News on Twitter. And we'd love to know what you thought of this year's Nature Podcast. Let us know on Twitter at Nature Podcast or by email podcast at nature.com. Plus, if you'd like us to reach an even bigger audience with our weekly science coverage, then make sure to leave us a review on your favourite podcast app. We're taking a little break and we'll be back early January. But in the meantime, have a lovely winter break if you're in the Northern Hemisphere and a lovely summer break if you're in the Southern Hemisphere and a great new year wherever you are. I'm Adam Levy and thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.